Good morning, and I uh, want to give a very warm welcome along with Pastor Andrew to all of you who are here today. It's great to see you, and uh, my name is Tom Nelson. I serve on the uh, teaching team at Christ Community, and uh, it is a privilege and a joy to open God's Word uh, with you this morning. So let's bow in prayer before we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your many gifts to each one of us, very air we breathe. You have blessed us in so many ways, and there is no greater blessing than your love for us. Father, we love you because you first loved us, so teach us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. It has often been said that the main thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing. And of course, that begs the question, is it not, what is the main thing? Now, if you are younger here this morning and maybe a student, maybe the one big thing, the one main thing right now in your life is getting good grades. Or maybe it's getting ready to get into a good college or having those close friends or being happy. Or maybe you're a little further down the road of life, a little bit perhaps, and you would say the main thing is getting a good job. Finding that true love of your life, having a great family, achieving financial independence, or a worry-free retirement. Now, these things are all good things, but are they the main thing? In our biblical text this morning, Jesus brilliantly, profoundly, and simply answers this very important question. What is the main thing? Jesus answers this question saying the main thing in life is to love rightly. But again, what does that truly mean? If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me as we look at this text in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew's Gospel is the first book in the New Testament. So before diving in, let's recall where we are in the story. As a church family, we are going through the book of Matthew. It is now the last week in Jesus' earthly sojourn. We are nearing the climax in our story of Jesus' redemptive mission. So as I said last week, in these final days, the intensity, the pace of the narrative quickens. And as you look at this text, as you listen to the story, as you engage it, you feel the electricity in the air as the inevitable collision between Jesus and the religious leaders and the religious aristocracy reaches its gruesome, yet its grand literary historical climax. Here in Matthew 22, we encounter what I like to describe as the conniving coalition. <laughs> you hear names like Pharisee, Sadducee, Herodians. It's like, what is that? Let me just say that it's not so much the names, it's what they're all about. These religious leaders attempt to corner Jesus and they attempt to trap him. And as we said last week, with disingenuous questions that are designed to trip him up, 
Their goal is to diminish what they perceive as a growing threat to their power and influence. So they pull out all the stops to publicly discredit Jesus. And they do it in a way to try to give the crowds. Jesus is the true rock star rabbi celebrity of the time. And so they are trying to paint a picture of him as intellectually deficient, stunningly inept, and dangerous. We said last week, Matthew 22 highlights three traps of the religious leaders. Three traps they set for Jesus, not traps of twisted steel, but of twisted words. Last week, we looked at the first two traps, the God and government trap and the love and marriage trap. And if you missed last week, I know some of you had some weather issues, I encourage you to listen on the website or on the podcast because these messages are integrally connected and flow together because Matthew has three traps. And this morning, we are going to look at the third trap that builds to this crescendo. I like to call it the rules and religious trap. Look with me right away at verses 34 through 36 as we enter this text. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, and what this means in this uh, technical language of of the Greek, is an expert scholar in Old Testament law, particularly the first five books of the Bible, which Jewish people call the Torah or the instruction. They asked him a question to test him, teacher or rabbi, Which is the great, or some of your translations might have greatest, it can be a superlative, greatest commandment to the law or in the law. Now, if we understand the context of Matthew 22, you'll notice the Pharisees are back for more. The first time, (laughs) uh, they fail. In fact, we said last week that they try to trap Jesus and the irony of ironies and Matthew drips with irony. It's one of his favorite literary devices. Is they are trapped by Jesus. But they spring out of their trap of shame, and they have now regrouped. Eugene Peterson, in his wonderful paraphrase, the message, verse 34, as he often does, brilliantly captures what the text is saying. Here's what he says. When the Pharisees heard how he had bested, like that, the Sadducees, listen carefully because he hits it right, they gathered their forces for an assault. That's exactly what's going on here. Now, if you know the rest of the chapter, you can look at it because it's a brilliant chapter. It all goes together. Notice, this time, they don't send their novice disciples. Last week, we looked at how they hid behind them. Now, they pull out their big gun. Uh, And the language suggests that this scholar is their brightest and best. And what they're thinking is that this rabbi, country bumpkin from Nazareth, who is not a part of the elite who's not been educated as they have, their best and brightest scholar is going to put him on the ropes on the first round. They're confident of that. No question. So you can imagine how they are snickering behind the scenes. We got them. And the question asked is, which is the great or greatest commandment in the log? And that's the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, when you read it from this cultural distance and language, it doesn't seem like a trick question. But actually, it's the most deceptive trap of the three. 
Because embedded in it is the logic of sophistry. That is, there is a deceptive premise with a deceptive inference. I want you to see this. Let's remember, uh, the Pharisees are, well, they're a prideful religious bunch. I'm just telling you. And they claim not to just follow the Big Ten. That's not a conference. That's the Big Ten Commandments. (laughs) But the Old Testament, there are over 600 additional laws beside the Big Ten. Now, that's a ton of rules. Can you imagine trying to follow 613 religious rules every day? You get the idea. But they were trying to do it, and they got pride in it. What mattered most to them was external conformity to the laws of God in looking good in the neighborhood. And there was lots of debate among this religious bunch, I guess that's all they had to do, (laughs) about which is the 613 plus is more weighty. That's the word they used. But to assert one commandment was far superior or much more important than the other 612 was a dangerous proposition for any rabbi to stand on. You following me? Why is this? Because to say one was most important might well be seen as diminishing or diluting others. This is a scandalous charge that would put any rabbi in a very unfavorable light as seen as being deficient in judgment of their teaching of the law of God. You see the subtlety? Like the previous two traps, the question Jesus is being asked puts him in a corner, a no-win. This is a lose-lose corner. Because whatever commandment Jesus says, they can twist and used to discredit Jesus and accuse him of disrespecting and dishonoring the law of God. In, in a sense, we might think of it this way. They want to put him in the corner of playing favorites with God's law. Parents, you read that experience? I grew up with six siblings. One of our greatest goals was to put mom or dad in the corner of who is their favorite. Kids, I know you've never done that. My mom and dad knew that trap, and if you're a parent, you know that trap. Which, if someone asks you, which child do you love the most? I mean, you know there's a problem with that question. You might protest its premise. Why? Why is that? Because you will probably say, as my mom just said, they're all different. They're all little scoundrels at times. They're all different, but we love them all. That's what you say, right? Okay, this is what's going on here. Like a parent who loves all their kiddos, Jesus loves all of the Old Testament, every piece. And he discerns again the sophistry of the question, that is, it has a false premise and a deceptive aim in its inference. Now, notice carefully and listen carefully, because if you miss this, you miss the flow of the text. Jesus turns the comparative question, do you see that? On its heels. From which of the 613 commandments is the most important to how loving rightly is the most important. So don't miss this. Choosing the right commandment is not the main thing. Loving rightly is the main thing. And Jesus' brilliant response 
points to the two loves of the human heart that all the commandments ultimately point to and pivot on and depend on. And this is the flow of the text. Jesus says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to love rightly. That is, to love God supremely and to love others sacrificially. Look at the first love. Love God supremely. Verses 37 to 38. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, if you've read the Bible a lot or you're just coming back to church or you're new to the Bible, you think, hey, the commandment, those are the big ten. Right? But Jesus would start with the first commandment of the ten. He doesn't. Jesus points to what Jewish people and the Hebrew people called the Shema, which really is the grand and unifying declaration of allegiance to the one true God in Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the gospel writer Mark in chapter 12, if you want to look at it later, gives more narrative texture to more of the conversation. Matthew doesn't cover all of it. It's on his purpose. And Mark tells us very specifically that Jesus gave specifically in his answer to the Shema. The word Shema comes from the first Hebrew verb of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It means to hear and obey seamlessly. And here's what Jesus said, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That means, or the Lord alone is God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So he quotes the Shema, and Jesus is saying the main thing in the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, and in life, is to love God supremely. That's it. That is, to love God with every breath we breathe, every thought we think, everything we have, heart, soul, mind, and strength, is to love Him supremely. He demands it. Whoa. A God, a deity who demands being loved may be off-putting for some of us here this morning. How does that sit with you? We may have some pushbacks for the God of the Bible who calls for exclusive and devotional love for Him first and foremost. Does this mean that God is self-absorbed, egotistical? A narcissistic deity? That kind of God would be unworthy of my devotion, your devotion, our wholehearted commitment, wouldn't it? The amazing woman and celebrity Oprah Winfrey is very transparent about her faith journey on this matter. And she says the reason she left the Christian faith in her late 20s is she couldn't imagine a jealous God who demanded you love him above all else. We can understand her thinking there. If you're not a Christian, you acknowledge that some other person who acted like that, a friend, a spouse, a boss, a pastor, for goodness sakes, said, love me exclusively. With all your heart, soul, mind, everything, it's all about me. You go, that's a scary problem. <laughs> Wouldn't you? You better. Sure, you love them. But why are they so demanding? Why are they so controlling, so smothering? Actor Brad Pitt, who has a Missouri background, by the way, you know that, went to the University of Missouri, 
Didn't hear any hoops and hollers on that one. <laughs> Guess we're all Jayhawks this morning. <clears throat> Describes leaving his Christian roots for this very reason. Here's what he says in the Parade Magazine. I thought this was pretty powerful. He says, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say, I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. How about you? At first glance, it does seem a bit egotistical, doesn't it? Incredibly exclusive. And yet, when we pause to think about it, you and I, we, hey, we love something more than else in life. There will be a supreme love in our life, in your life, and in my life. That's not the question. Something will capture our minds, the longings of our hearts, the desires of our souls, more than anything else in life. You and I will love something or someone supremely. It may be yourself. For me, it may be myself. God forbid or a friend, or a spouse, or a child, or a dream, or a pleasure, or a possession. See, hear carefully, the bedrock truth is whatever you love most will shape your life most and determine your future most. The one who wrote best about this apart from Jesus in the history of the Christian church for over 2,000 years is in the 4th century, St. Augustine. Augustine of Hippo has written the best on this area than anyone in the history of the Christian church. Augustine understood this, and he said this, listen, and this is what I said is worth the price of admission. Augustine said, Where, what, wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Augustine knew the importance of properly ordered loves, and he pictures our lives, your lives, and my life as we are on a ship, a boat. And the current and winds of what we love is propelling us to a destiny. Augustine knew what we truly love sends us in a life trajectory, a direction to a particular destiny that will either fail us or fulfill us. And if you and I don't get the main thing in life right, that is, if we don't order our loves properly, if we don't love God supremely, then our lives are set on course for endless drifting and ultimate destruction. God does not demand we love Him supremely merely because He wants something from us, but because He wants something for us. He wants what's best for you and me. God does not demand we love Him supremely because He's some kind of a petty deity or he has a humongous ego, or a jealousy problem. It's because the things in this world, apart from God himself, will never satisfy or sustain the deepest longings of your heart, your highest love. Only God himself can satisfy the deepest longings of your life. You don't have to be a Christian yet to see the inevitably inevitability of a supreme love in every human life. Author and essayist David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address, he's not a Christian, never claimed to be a Christian, to Kenyon College, to college students in the commencement. 
And he reminds us we all must worship. And he says we must love something as our highest ideal. Listen to his words. If you worship money and things, I'm going to read this slowly. If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the very edge of being found out. This is why, friends, Jesus says the most important thing you can do, that I can do, is to love God supremely above all else. It's the most important thing any human being can do. And it's because if, if you don't, it's not that God's ego is hurt or he's unfulfilled. It's that if you don't love him supremely, your life is like the Titanic. What you love most now in this moment, what is it? may make you feel invincible, strong, as steel, and indestructible. But let me just tell you out of love, the hidden icebergs of loss, of grief, of disappointment, of disillusionment, and despair are lurking right around the corner of your life, and you will sink eventually. If you don't love God first, you are charting the course of your life in the wrong direction. Because you and I were created out of a Trinitarian love for intimacy with the God who created us. When we love God supremely, we embrace God's design for us and we flourish. See, we all love and live for something, don't we? We all do. Each of our lives tell us this, what we think most about, what we talk most about, what we care most about, how we spend our time, our money, what we prioritize, all points to one thing, what we truly love the most. So can I ask you two questions that I've been wrestling with as my head and heart have been in this text this week? First, what is your life telling you about what you love the most? What is your life telling you? And secondly, if God is not your supreme love, then what is? Be honest. One of my favorite and most encouraging marriage books is Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages. If you've not been exposed to that, I encourage you. Gary makes the point that love and marriage is expressed in five main ways. Words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, giving of gifts, and physical touch. Gary's thesis is that spouses that grow in intimacy and flourish learn to communicate in those primary love languages that are often different among the spouses. While we may grasp 
the importance of love languages in marriage. Have you, have I, have we given thought to what are God's love languages? There are profound parallels here. How do we love God supremely? The Holy Scriptures reveal a good deal about how we do that. Let me suggest for your thinking at least three initial love languages of loving God. The first one is faith. The New Testament writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We know that expressing our complete trust in someone communicates what? A deep and abiding love for them. When we trust and put our faith in Christ, that expresses the most extraordinary love to him. Faith. Secondly, is the love language of obedience. Jesus put it this way in John 14. He who has my commandments and what? And keeps them. He it is, or she it is, who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and will love him and disclose myself to him. When we obey what God has revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures, we express our most passionate love for him. Third, another language is the words of affirmation, which we often in a Christian context, if you're newer, we call praise. The psalmist paints the picture that God delights Psalm 149, in the praises of his people. See, from the first book of the Bible, that's Genesis, to the last book in the Bible, which is Revelation, we understand what God wants from us most is to love him most. How many of us find the Bible difficult to, to navigate? I do. There's a lot of difficulties. It's very complex. There's a lot there. But Jesus unpacks it all with the most profound simplicity that guides us through it all. To love God supremely and love others sacrificially. See, loving others matters too. This is where Jesus goes. And we must not miss that what others need most is for you to love God most. Think about parents, grandparents. Think about how that's true in your life. Research bears this out. All of us, I trust, want to love our children or our grandchildren. What's the most important way to love your children? It's to love your spouse well. How you speak about your spouse, how you treat your spouse, how you serve your spouse, how you honor your spouse profoundly influence and imprint your children and their future marriage if God calls them to marry. Parents, if you want to love your children well, and I know you do, love your spouse well. In a similar way, Jesus is teaching here the way to love others is to love God most. The love of God and our love for God forms and informs all other loves of our heart. And if the primary passion of your life is to love God well, you will in time increasingly love others well. Jesus knew this, and this is where he goes in the second love. 
That is to love others sacrificially. Look at verses 39 through 40. And he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice what Jesus says. This is stunning. On these two things, two commandments, depend all the rest of the Old Testament scripture. That's the law and prophets, the whole deal, the whole deal. And Jesus now adds to the Shema a quotation from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John, or Jesus is saying Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5 and Leviticus 19.18 are the main thing. The big idea of the entire Old Testament. Love God supremely and love others sacrificially. The gospel writer Luke gives us another account. We're not sure if it's the same account or another one. I think it's another one. But he has a conversation with another Old Testament expert about what's the big thing, what's the main thing. And the conversation centers around the great commandment, what we know as the love God and love our neighbor. And the guy asks him, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells one of the most common stories in all the Bible, the Good Samaritan. All of us have heard of that. Jesus describes someone who loves God supremely and loves their neighbor sacrificially as someone who is beaten and left by the road for dead. The good Samaritan stops and has compassion and cares for him, takes him to the inn. And Jesus says, this is neighborly love. And of course, it points to Jesus himself, who's the ultimate good Samaritan who will die for us and lay down his life for us, beaten and dead and left by the road. The good Samaritan is Jesus' visual picture, story of the great commandment. It is neighborly love that reflects heartfelt compassion as well as economic capacity. Let's not forget that the good Samaritan was able to care for his neighbor in need, not just because he had compassion, but he had economic capacity to care for that neighbor because of his work. His generosity just didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of hard work and economic well-being. See, when it, what comes into your mind when you think about neighborly love? Perhaps it's taking soup to a neighbor when they are sick. That's a good thing. Mowing their lawn on a vacation. That's a good thing, of course. But does Jesus have that in mind? Much more than that. Jesus teaches that our neighborly love is not restricted just to those who are in close geographical proximity, but it extends to the broader human family. So what does neighborly love look like? Let me highlight a few things. First, from the Good Samaritan story, neighborly love is centered in the work we do every day. It is the work we do every day, the work you do tomorrow, whether it's paid or unpaid, is how we primarily love our global community and our local community. The work we do every day provides the capacity and the value and the love for our neighbor to meet their needs. The work you do matters tomorrow. Not only to God, but to your neighbor, both local and global. The best workers, Jesus says, makes the best neighbors. One of the primary ways we love others is in and through the work we do every day. But secondly, another way to express neighborly love throughout Scripture is to seek to protect the marginalized and the vulnerable in our world. On the Sanctity of Life Sunday, we are reminded especially of the unconscionable taking 
of human life of the unborn through legalized abortion on demand. Let's be very clear. Because something is declared legal does not necessarily mean it is just, right, or moral. Our American history weeps because of that fault. We need to have great compassion, but we need to have moral clarity in this moment of what is really at stake. So what does neighborly love for the unborn require? May I suggest a few things for your consideration? Fervent prayer, civil and peaceful protest, public square persuasion, financial commitment to pro-life causes, fostering adoption, and working tirelessly to change existing unjust laws. I know of no more compelling injustices, and there's a lot in our time, that we need to care about. But I know of no greater one right now in scope and in evil than legalized abortion on demand in this country. Loving our neighbor also involves, hear me well, don't shut me off, boldly proclaiming the gospel, sure. Seeking justice for the marginalized, working to expand educational and economic opportunity for the marginalized, as I mentioned last week, addressing racism and prejudice, and recommitting ourselves to work for a more just and flourishing society. Paul will say, just like Jesus, They'll summarize in Romans 13, all the ten, the ten Commandments say, hey, this is it. The one who loves another fulfills the law, and love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. Jesus ordered to love, demand to love him supremely and love others sacrificially. It's a tall order, isn't it? How are you feeling? It's like, wow, that's a lot. Is the great commandment, the great setup? I don't believe so for a minute. When we understand and pursue the path God has paved for us to truly love rightly, we can increasingly love like that. There are three essential takeaways wherever you are on your spiritual journey this morning that guide you down the path to love as Jesus would have you love, to order your loves rightly. They're not a mystery. There are three main ones. First is each of us needs a new birth. We need forgiveness of our sin and new hearts that only Jesus can give us. Only Jesus can give us a heart that loves like that. No one has loved God and loved others more than Jesus Christ, the God-man himself. And nowhere is this seen more beautifully and clearly and powerfully than at the cross in Jerusalem. The Apostle John writes, listen carefully to his words, beloved, isn't that beautiful? Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now notice where he goes. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, it's a big word, the satisfaction, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We love because Jesus has loved us and died for us. Have you in repentance of your sin and faith embraced the good news of the gospel? 
Have you experienced the heart-transforming love of Christ when you embrace it? Have you experienced what it's like? When Jesus reaches down to you and you respond in faith and obedience and he makes you new and gives you a new heart with new loves. You can't do it on your own, no matter how moral or good you are. It's a gift of grace that each of us must receive. Secondly, there's a new apprenticeship. Not only a new birth, but a new apprenticeship. Jesus gives us one of the most amazing invitations imaginable. When Jesus says in Matthew 11, 20 through 30, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is a picture of Genesis. He's given a midrash of the Old Testament of the life God has for us in creation, the full life. I'll give you this life you were created to live. I will give you rest. So how do we do that? We take his yoke, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The heart of Jesus' great invitation, this great invitation to apprenticeship, Jesus gives us a primary metaphor of a yoke that was used in the first century to train farm animals to live into the existence they were created to live and contribute to the world as they were called to contribute. Jesus paints a compelling picture for us of how we are transformed moment by moment to love Jesus and to love as he loves and to love as we ought. When we choose to follow Jesus fully, as a disciple, when we say to him, we are all yours, we're all in, all the time, we're all yours. When we enter his yoke of obedience and submission and become his apprentice, we learn from him how to live the life he would live if he were us. In every dimension of life, our thoughts change, our relationships change, our work changes, our money changes, everything about us begins to change as he teaches us how to live life as God designed it. In his yoke of apprenticeship, we learn from Jesus how to love what he loves, how to order our loves, and how to love God supremely and love others sacrificially. The great commandment is only possible, friends, through the great invitation made by the greatest person who paid the greatest price on the cross. Without Jesus' great invitation to be yoked with him, the great commandment to love God supremely and others sacrificially is the great setup. Have you said yes to Jesus? To be his disciple, to be all in with him, to enter his yoke of apprenticeship and follow him and learn from him. You will never, I will never order my loves rightly apart from Jesus teaching how to do it in his yoke every day. Lastly, it's a new community. Not only a new birth, we need a new apprenticeship, a new community. Jesus said, I will build my church. The great commandment and the great invitation point to a new community he creates called the local church. Loving rightly is not merely an individual pursuit, friends. It is a collective pursuit. None of us on our own can ever love fully or rightly or order our loves properly unless we are a vital part of a local church where we learn how to do that. The bride of Christ, the local church, is supernaturally empowered. It is a learning community formed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, uniquely designed to help each of us love rightly. And Jesus said, didn't he? What is the authenticating mark of a local church or anyone who represents him? Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my what? My disciples, by what? By your love for one another. That cannot be experienced apart from a local church community. 
So are you a part of a vital local church? If you're looking for a local church, we encourage you, not in any selfish way, to jump in. We'd be delighted to have, have you be a part of us. We're not perfect. We're far from it. But we want to follow Jesus fully. And we need his strength to do that, and we would love to have you come and join us. And let's not forget the flavor of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Right? Individuals and communities who are filled with the Spirit love God rightly and love others rightly. So I encourage you to check out a community group. Become a part of the membership class. We have a baptism coming up soon. If you've never been baptized and you are a Christian, what a wonderful opportunity in the end of February to do that. As a gift of his costly grace, Jesus offers you and me a new birth. He offers us a new apprenticeship and a new community so that we can, each of us, love God supremely and love others sacrificially. The main thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing. And Jesus says the main thing in life is to love rightly. And Jesus teaches us how to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us fall short. We feel at times the distance between our paltry love and the love you have for us. So Lord, teach us to love you supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves, sacrificially. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father. May we love you and experience your love wherever we are this morning. May we look to you. May you give us new hearts. May we enter your yoke. And may we be the local church you've called us to be.